0: The Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, Captain Morgan on a rampage through time and liquor cabinets, tough guy magic users and a crazy Viking advice columnist, plus part 20 of the complete audiobook serialization David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour Podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have an interview with Steve White, the author of many Bane books, including novels in the best-selling Starfire series with David Weber. We're going to be talking about Steve's Jason Thano time travel books and his new entry in that series. It's called Pirates of the Time Stream. It's new this month at Booksellers. And of course, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. But first, Bane Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. It's a hot and sticky August in the northern hemisphere of planet Earth, but some very cool new Bane titles debut this month to cool you off, or warm you up if you're down under. Uh, Whatever the metaphor is. In hardcover, we've got book three in the Grimnor Chronicles, Warbound by Larry Correa, who is also the creator of the Monster Hunter series, of course. The Grimnor Chronicles is a great series set in an alternative 1930s America where magic works and a hard-bitten P.I. has to deal with magic using baddies. Uh, what else we got, Laura, this month? Uh, well, also new in August is Pirates of the Time Stream by Steve White. This is the third book in the Jason Thanu time travel series. Now you say Thanu. Mm-hmm. I say Than but what I does, think... What does Steve say? What does say? Steve say, yes. Well, we'll find out shortly, because he'll be up next. Excellent. Uh, this one follows Sunset of the Gods and Blood of the Heroes, and in this one, we've got evil aliens masquerading as gods who meet Captain Morgan, the Pirate of the Caribbean. The cover is by Don Mates, the artist who did the original Captain Morgan rum poster. Yeah, and it's cool and this one depicts a female pirate which they did exist in the 1660s which is when the book is set. And she's also a voodoo priestess. Um and she comes into the story in a big way. Zenobia is her name. Anyway, we'll we will talk with Steve shortly about that. Hey, we also have a great short story collection from Michael Z. Williamson just out. It's called Tour of Duty. And that's the one that subtitled Stories and Provocations, right? Yeah. So what's the provocation part about? Um, Well, this is some excellent nonfiction by Mike that takes up part of the book. Uh, Some of it is humorous. He has these Viking advice columns. He's uh, Crazy Einar, the Viking advice uh, guy. And um, some is very serious and outspoken about a few things. It's really good stuff. Well, you can find links to all of the new August books at the Bain.com website. Go ye there and be amazed. Are you amazed, Laura? I'm amazed. We'll all be amazed. With me today is Bain Editor Emeritus Hank Davis, and we want to welcome Steve White to the podcast. Hi, Steve.
2: Hi, Hank.
0: Hi, Steve. Good to
2: hear from you. (laughs)
1: Uh, Steve White is the author of a somewhat astounding 18 novels with Bain books. I'm looking at a giant stack of them sitting here on the podcast table. He's the author with David Weber and a couple of other later authors of the Starfire series of novels. These these include Insurrection, Crusade, In Death Ground, and The Shiva Option, which was a New York Times bestseller. Steve's other Bane series include the Prince of Sunset series, the Disinherited series, the Stars series, I guess we're calling it with Eagle Against the Stars and Wolf Among the Stars, and uh standalone science fiction novels such as Demon's Gate, The Prometheus Project, and, and one I personally like a lot, St. Anthony's Fire, which is this wonderful alternate history science fiction blend where rather nasty aliens help the Spanish win against the British, and Queen Elizabeth when the Armada shows up. And finally, we have the series we want to talk about today, the Jason Thanow Time Travel Novels. Steve, did I say Jason's last name right, and did I leave anything out of that huge list?
2: Yeah, yeah his name is pronounced Thano, his last name, and I think you uh, covered just about everything there that I've written, with the exception of one standalone, Forge of the Titans, which by the way, really is a standalone. Now, Demon's Gate and St. Anthony's Fire, which by the way, I'm glad you enjoyed, are Potentially the beginnings of new series. Each of them is left open for sequels at the end, and I hope to do some future work in those universes.
1: Now, Forge of the Titans has um, a wonderful cover by David Mattingly, I, I believe. That's the one with My the... My
2: favorite cover, and if you think about it, you can probably figure out why.
1: <laughs> we'll let people look it up on the... Dudge Dudge week, week. The Bainey Books website. <laughs> the first novel... In the Jason Thanau series is uh, Blood of Heroes. In this one, our cynical, tough guy hero Jason leads a group of time travelers back to Minoan Greece to watch the Santorini explosion near the Aegean island of Thera. This was one of the largest volcanic events in all human history and is thought to have a part to play in the origin tales of the Greek gods and maybe even the legend of Atlantis. Steve, which came first, your interest in this huge historical event, or your sly and very intriguing ideas for the real origin of the Greek gods?
2: Well, my mother was a poet and an English teacher, She got me hooked on the Greek myths at a very early age, and I've never recovered. Much later, in 1971, when I was a naval intelligence officer, I was doing some intelligence work in Greece, and I spent some time there, and I was able to see a number of things, including the island of Thera, and also the ruins of Mycenae. And I think you'd have to be seriously unimaginative not to have your imagination stimulated by these places. The the whole idea of the potential consequences of the Santorini explosion has always interested me. I've had several ideas over the decades of something I wanted to write on that, and I was finally able to do it <clears throat> with Blood of the Heroes.
1: Did, you, uh, did it require a lot more um, historical research, or was your experience just visiting there and, and having uh, learned about it over the years enough to, to get going on the
0: novel?
2: I did a lot of in-depth research on the period, in this case, the Aegean Bronze Age, and uh, I developed some pet theories of my own to account for some of the uh, archaeological puzzles of that period, which I was able to slip into the novel in what I hope was a fairly painless way.
1: Let's talk some more about the way that you, you research these, these great time travel books. You've said elsewhere that, that writing lets you make use of the reading you would do anyway, since you use a lot of historical details in the Jason Thano books. Are you an eclectic reader, or do you have a specific area of knowledge that you concentrate on?
2: As to being wedded to a particular historical period, I suppose you could call me a serial monogamist. At any given time, there's going to be one particular area of history I'm particularly interested in, but I uh, go from one to the other, and I'm always coming back to my first love, which was classical antiquity. Another favorite is the Elizabethan era, which I was able to do some work with in St. Anthony's Fire. Another area I keep coming back to, which really intrigues me, is imperial Chinese history. In fact, my two-parter, Prince of Sunset and Emperor of Dawn, follow very closely the model of Chinese history from the Three Kingdoms period to the founding of the Tang Dynasty. In fact, anybody who knows anything about that probably knew what was going to happen next in those novels.
1: Now we really get into uh, the historical details with uh, Sunset of the Gods, the the second Jason Thano book, and we also run into a very evil human or part human enemy that is some ways worse than the Teloi, who are the the bad guys in Blood of Heroes. The Teloi are merely insane. The transhumans are, are really, really bad. Let's talk the Teloi first, if I'm saying that correctly. The idea that the gods were aliens is found in a lot of science fiction stories through the decades. What led you to uh, take up this hoary tradition?
2: As Richard Nixon used to say, <clears throat> let me make one thing perfectly clear. I don't personally believe in any of these ancient astronaut um, God's in Flying Saucers, uh, theories. If you want to know my real feelings on these theories, read Wolf Among the Stars, in which I wax fairly sarcastic on the subject. But as far as that goes, I also don't believe in the possibility of time travel. But it's such a wonderful historical device, it seems a shame to give it up just because it's impossible. And the same goes for the... uh, extraterrestrial origin of some of the pantheons of gods in the past. It's just simply a lot of fun, and I think it can be used as a very entertaining fictional device as long as we don't take it too seriously.
1: Well, I think you breathe new life into the gods as alien troph with with these books. Um, There's some really interesting twists on it that you deliver. Now, the transhumanists, uh, Jason's other Nemesis, um... They have a part in human history just prior to Jason um, and are the reason for some of the limitations that time travelers have. They can't take an interior device that would allow them to know the language, for instance. Can't take an iPad back in time with you. Can you tell us some of the temporal rules? Tell us about the transhumanists first.
2: Well, the transhumanists controlled Earth the century before Jason's period. Jason, by the way, lives in the late 24th century. The transhumanists had an ideology which called for the use of genetic engineering and cybernetic enhancement and direct neural interfacing and nanotechnology and a lot of the uh, possibilities that are beginning to emerge to consciously take the human race to what they consider the next stage of its uh, evolution, namely gods and monsters, basically a lot of uh, subservient Highly specialized castes controlled by uh, an elite of uh, genetically enhanced supermen. And uh, these people controlled Earth for about three generations. Now, as a result of this madness, the um, <clears throat> society that Jason lives in has backlashed into something very different. Jason's society is a very cautious and conservative one about technological overreaching. My historical model here is the way Europe rebounded from the religious fanaticism of the religious wars of the 1600s to the mannered Ancien Regime of the 1700s. So, Jason works for an outfit called the Temporal Regulatory Authority which uh, has exclusive jurisdiction of all legal time travel and this is uh, an extremely high bound bureaucracy very typical of Jason's society and it's run at the top level by a bunch of real ivory tower academics and this always leads to some fireworks when it comes to Jason's interactions with his superiors
1: yeah Jason does not like bureaucrats <laughs> <laughs> Some of the when you talk about the transhuman when when the transhumanists appear in the novels, there seems to be a particular vitriol aimed at them that seems almost authorial. Do you uh, have any particular uh, ideas about eugenics and uh, that you, that you're communicating there, or is it just the the?
2: Well, as anybody who's read much of my work can probably guess, my particular feeling is that most of the really bad stuff in the world is caused by totalitarian ideology at the service of the power junkie mentality, and on the basis of the history of the last hundred years, I think I can make a pretty good case for that position. And what I have the transhumanists doing is linking this with a lot of potentially dangerous Developments that we're beginning to see see now and rejecting the idea of any controls over them. Essentially, it's uh, runaway technology at the uh, service of coercive utopianism. And uh, to answer your question, yes, I do consider this potentially very scary.
1: Well, it, it certainly comes across. Can you explain in the, the books uh, some of the temporal rules? They're fun, and, and they really play into the story. In fact, the stories sort of turn on on the temporal rules. Why can't Jason go back and shoot Hitler, for instance? And, and tell us about those message drops, and why can't he take a car back in time? <laughs> uh,
2: the reason Jason can't go back and shoot Hitler is because history... The history, which has eventuated in Jason's own society and Jason himself, says Hitler wasn't shot. This goes to a very crucial premise of this series, and that is that there are no paradoxes. Reality protects itself. If Jason went back to pre-World War One Vienna and tried to shoot Hitler, the gun would jam, or he would think he had shot Hitler, but found out, but but he find out later that he had shot a different little tramp by mistake. Or, and this is the real reason why Jason and company don't do this sort of thing, another possibility is that while he was drawing a bead on Hitler, one of those early automobiles they were using at the time would run him over. So you see, the harder you push against reality, the harder reality pushes back. This is called the observer effect. Observed history cannot be changed. The past can be changed.
1: So the closer you get to something that's a historical record, the more dangerous it is, in other words.
2: Uh, in, uh, in, uh, there can be tragic consequences, and in fact this happens in the uh, latest novel in the series, which has yet to appear, Ghosts of Time. Jason tries to fight the observer effect and learns or relearns that it cannot be fought. Now, as I say, the, the past can be changed as long as it doesn't violate observed history, and this is the basis of the message drop system, which is the only way time travelers have of communicating with their own time. There, there's no such thing as a trans-temporal radio or anything like that. What they can do is write a message on some very durable medium and leave it in some pre-arranged cave or something. It's still uh, some location that's still going to be relatively undisturbed in the late 24th century, and their superiors uptime can pick it up there. Uh, This uh, obviously has a lot of limitations. In fact, uh, Jason doesn't get to use it much because it's very inconvenient usually for him to reach the prearranged location when he's off uh, having adventures somewhere else.
1: So uh, my favorite parts of the uh, the books are your meticulous and, and really riveting depictions of real historical events. I mean, for me, that is what time travel stories are all about. Um, this desire to to be there, and you you take the reader there. Sunset of the Gods revolves around the Battle of Marathon in Greece. Many consider this a battle that won the West, as it were, or at least created conditions for Western culture to develop, and you have a, a really stunning description of what it's like to be inside the armor of a hoplite warrior advancing on an enemy. Can you tell us Why did you pick Marathon, first of all, for the second book? And how did you go about getting into the mindset and into the very helmet of a Greek warrior of the time?
2: Well, as for why I focused on Marathon, as you yourself have pointed out, it was a really crucial battle in world history. In my opinion, this is beyond argument. Also, the legend of the god Pan being involved in the Athenian victory at Marathon was an obvious opening for me, to connect that with one of these transhumanist plots, to start a slowly germinating cult in the past and keep it going by periodic uh, appearances by people with accurate prophecies of the future from time to time over the centuries. The yeah. Pan was obviously a way to do that, and I make him a uh, gene-twisted creation of the transhumanists. And as for your other question, well, I can't honestly say I was writing about hoplite warfare from direct personal experience. However, as always, I did some extremely in-depth research, and I was fortunate in that there is some extremely good source material on this. A lot of very good work has been done in the field, and I would particularly recommend the book The Western Way of War by Victor Davis Hanson,
1: yeah, he's a he's an excellent writer uh, and historian. Well, let's turn to Pirates of the Time Stream. We're in a very different era at, in this book. This is the time of Captain Morgan, Henry Morgan, privateer, and then Pirate of the Caribbean. Uh, and the cover for Pirates of the Time Stream is by none other than Don Mates, who is the artist who created that Captain Morgan's rum version of, of Morgan with the devilish curled mustache and and all that. Uh, Can you describe the conditions in the Caribbean at the time, which I think it's the 1660s that the book takes place in. Why did you set up Jason Thano's story there?
2: The Caribbean in the 1660s was the first Wild West. There was a saying at the time, no peace beyond the line, the line being the line that the Pope had drawn dividing the New World between Spain and Portugal. And the Spaniards considered anybody in their allotted portion, which was most of it, to be an interloper, and they were extremely ruthless in rooting out interlopers. It was a brutal form of warfare that went on there. Now, the English had taken and colonized Jamaica, but the English crown was too cheap to provide for a defense of it, so the only defense the colonists had was the privateers. So it was like the western townspeople in the old western movie who had to bring in a gunslinger to protect them from the bandits.
1: So when you when you had sanction of some authority, you were a privateer, and when you didn't have sanction, you were a pirate?
2: Uh, yes, um, and, they, and uh, the pirate, you have to understand, was uh, really a fighting word. And Henry Morgan absolutely hated being called a pirate. Calling him a pirate was a pretty good way to get your throat cut. Now, uh, Morgan himself, it it was almost impossible not to make a great character out of Henry Morgan. Uh, Some people who have read Pirates of the Time stream in electronic form have been extremely complimentary about him. One person told me that uh, Morgan practically swaggers right off the page and helps himself to the contents of the liquor cabinet. (laughs) Somebody else told me that Morgan steals every scene he's in. And uh, I think this is to be expected. Uh, he was a son of a bitch, but he was a larger-than-life son of a bitch.
1: Well, you, I mean, you do a great job of capturing him, and and he does steal a lot of scenes, but um, Jason likes him, has a grudging respect for him that grows over time in, in the novel. We also get some very interesting voodoo details, uh, including a, a rather grisly killing during a ritual. Uh, I think you've traveled in the region. Have you ever encountered voodoo?
2: directly i've been i've never been to haiti i've been to the dominican republic where there is uh one of the different versions of the afro-caribbean syncretic religions in business but i never directly encountered it i did encounter some jamaican folkways when i was in jamaica and actually i'm a lot more familiar with jamaica but i <clears throat> had to do research on this and in uh, As I think I pointed out in my author's note, I was very much indebted to the book Tell My Horse by Zora Neale Hurston. This is a brilliant book. Uh, Hurston is an African-American woman in the early 20th century. She wrote novels and also anthropological works, and it was you have to understand it was fairly unusual for an African-American woman to get published at all in the early 20th century. But she, uh, I'm glad to say that she apparently is undergoing a rediscovery now.
1: Also, when we meet up with Jason's old nemesis, the uh, the transhumanist, and also the tell Teloy are back um, to cause trouble. You give a really cool depiction of a transhumanist who comes over to our side, as it were, the human side. How would you describe Zenobia?
2: In a word, Zenobia is formidable. She has a lot of the artificial advantages that the transhumanists give their agents through genetic enhancement and um, bionic implants and so forth, but she goes renegade with them and sets herself up to do them as much dirt as she can. She, <clears throat> she also eh, has uh, very little use for Jason's culture. She's very much a lone wolf. It's because of uh, personal connection she makes, a personal affection she forms in the course of the novel, that she ends up becoming at least an ally of Jason's, and, uh, well, I don't want to go into Ghosts of Time, which hasn't come out yet, but she does reappear in that and uh, becomes reconnected with Jason in a very significant way, which is going to be developed in the subsequent
1: novels. She's the one on the cover, isn't she?
2: I, I can only uh, assume so. The,
1: uh, well, she certainly looks the like visualized
2: her, <laughs> her as being somewhat darker than that, but still, it's a great cover. I really couldn't be happier with that cover, nor with the cover to uh, Sunset of the Gods. I've gotten lots of compliments on that one.
1: That's a Kurt Miller cover, I believe. It's also very beautiful. Well, next up for Jason and crew is the American Civil War, uh, as you mentioned, Ghosts of Time's What can you tell us about that?
2: Well, of course, uh, the American Civil War is a little closer to home for me than classical antiquity or even the uh, seventeenth century Caribbean. In fact, I have Confederate ancestors. As I think I mentioned in the author's note to Ghosts of Time, I was born in Virginia in 1946 and therefore grew up picturing God as a slightly imperfect version of Robert E. Lee. (laughs) I... uh, I've always been very interested in the period, and particularly in the final phases of the war, the, the fall of Richmond in particular. You can, you can walk around Richmond today and visualize what happened, which was some pretty serious stuff. And here again, I was inspired by a recent book, which I would strongly recommend, entitled April 1865 by J. Winnick. Uh, it's uh, one of the best pieces of popular history I've read in quite a long time, and it brings a whole new perspective to bear on the conclusion that in that month, April 1865, of the Civil War. And he, uh, he is particularly good at pointing out that the way the Civil War concluded was not foreordained, it was not inevitable, and any number of things could have happened, and almost Without exception, the other possible outcomes would have been horrible. It brings home the harshness of the period, but it also brings home the fact that there were some extremely intelligent and well-intentioned people at work, and they were able to prevent the post-war development of America into a kind of Bosnia writ large.
1: Now, you live among among the remnants of the Civil War. Uh, you, you live in Virginia, do you not? And yes, I do.
2: I'm a, uh, I myself live in Charlottesville, but I'm not too far from Fredericksburg, which before uh, <clears throat> Verdun in World War One, was probably one of the most fought-over places on planet Earth. And I'm also close to Richmond, which, I, as I say, is very much worth a uh, visit, if you have any interest whatsoever in <clears throat> the Civil War.
1: Well, I imagine you might have seen some of those ghosts, over, <laughs> or at least uh,
2: <laughs> the
1: <clears throat> imagine them. What we're talking about now, though, is Pirates of the Time Stream, book three in the Jason Thano time travel series by Steve White. Steve, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you. I've enjoyed it.
1: And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than a 100,000 other titles, including many Bane titles, when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has defeated one long-standing enemy, the Havenites, and reached a truce with another menace, the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and on the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the Royal Manticoran Navy forces in the Talbot Quadrant, a region allied with the Star Kingdom and on the border of the restive frontier of Solarian space. Goldpeak sympathizes with the rebels... But wants to be careful that whatever help she supplies is in a time and place of her own choosing. Now, in the Saltash system, that chance may have arrived. With the help of Solarian battle cruisers, the system governor has impounded Manticoran merchant ships in a deliberate act of provocation. Royal Manticoran Navy Commodore Jacob Zavala and his destroyer squadron have arrived in system to release the merchantmen from illegal Sali confinement. And after a devastating display of Manticoran martial superiority, Zavala has the upper hand. But the Saltash governor refuses to negotiate. Zavala has no choice but to dispatch a boarding party to the orbital station where the merchants are held hostage. Here is part 20 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom.
0: Chapter 14 Captain Valentine McNaughton of the Saltash Space Service scowled in irritation as the distinctive signal of a private comm request chimed in his earbug. In Captain McNaughton's opinion, this wasn't the best imaginable time for a friend to be calming him not with the entire star system going rapidly to hell and five Manticorn light cruisers decelerating steadily towards the space station for which he was ostensibly responsible. He kept his eyes on the display in front of him, ignoring the signal while he wondered what the hell Governor Duenas thought he was doing. McNaughton had been as stunned as anyone by the almost casual obliteration of Vice Admiral battle battlecruisers, but that lent a certain emphasis a lot of emphasis, actually, to his present concerns. Although Shona Station's megaton mass dwarfed any battlecruiser ever built, it was also far more fragile and stuffed full of civilians, not just people in uniform. It seemed self-evident to that station's CO that keeping ships which could shred battlecruisers from doing the same thing to Shona would be a good idea yet he was beginning to think he was the only person in the entire star system that thought had occurred to. Duaneus, you miserable asshole, he thought scathingly. You don't have a friggin' clue, do you? I really don't want to see what you screw up for an encore, but I've got a nasty feeling I'm going to. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, Grandpa, what did you think you were doing? The question had all sorts of jagged personal edges at the moment, since Captain McNaughton's grandfather had been the president of McPhee, whose brainstorm had led to the Office of Frontier Securities being invited into Saltash in the first place. The old man had lived to regret it, but by and large, McNaughton didn't see where he'd had a lot of choice. Saltashians prided themselves on their stubbornness, and they'd been all set to reprise Old Earth's final war on cinnamon even though the stubbornest had to admit their original quarrel had arisen out of an almost trivial dispute over fishing rights, of all damned things. Well, McNaughton's grandmother had always claimed that no one else in the entire anti-diaspora history of the human race had been able to hold a grudge, cherish a feud, or cling to a lost cause like the Scots. Except, perhaps, she added thoughtfully, the Irish. Apparently, some things changed even less than others. McNaughton didn't know about that. He wasn't a student of history, and he'd had other things to concern himself with here in Saltash, like dealing with the consequences of frontier security's arrival. While he was willing to concede even OFS was preferable to a sterilized planet, there were times he wasn't certain just how preferable it might be. His was one of the families which had managed to cling to a position of at least some power and privilege, even under the new management, which was how he'd come to command Shona Station in the first place. But that also meant his family was in a better position than most to realize just how cynical the Sollys' exploitation of his home system actually was. It wasn't that systems like Saltash provided enormous amounts of cash to the League compared to even the smallest core system, not individually at any rate. Yet there were so many of them— each of them one more revenue-producing node in Frontier Security's benevolent little empire, that the aggregate cash flow was stupendous, and the amounts the League extracted from Saltash in the form of service fees and licensing fees were more than enough to choke off any domestic economic growth. McNaughton knew Saltash was better off than many, probably the majority of the protectorate systems, and Cinnamon had escaped a kind of grinding poverty that was the fate of all too many other worlds in The Verge. But he wasn't certain stagnation was a lot better than penury, and he was certain that frontier security apparatchiks like Damian Duenas had absolutely no interest in changing the situation. It was working just fine for them, the way it was. Or it had been until today, at any rate. Unfortunately... Duenas wasn't the one who was going to pay the heaviest price, or who'd already paid it, for that matter. MacNaughton hadn't known Dabroskaya well. She hadn't been in system long enough, but she'd sure as hell deserved better than she'd gotten. And the McNaughton clan had been around long enough for him to know that, with Dabroskaya dead, Duenas was going to heap all the responsibility for what had happened here on her, if he could." It was amazing how convenient dead scapegoats who weren't around to dispute what had happened could be. And if anything else goes wrong, he's going to hang the responsibility for that on anyone he can, too. Which puts me right in the line of fire, and His earbug chimed again louder, and he growled a silent mental curse as it added a priority sequence to the signal. He looked around for a moment then crooked a finger at Commander Tad Rankler, his executive officer. Take the throne for a minute, Tad, he said, jerking his thumb over his shoulder at the command chair, where he should technically have parked his posterior. Apparently, I have to take a call. Hell of a time for it, Rankler grunted. The SSS wasn't all that big on spit and polish, and McNaughton and Rankler had known one another since boyhood. Tell Mora I said hi. It's not Mora, McNaughton said, hovering on the edge of a grin, despite the catastrophe looming its way towards them. He and Mora had been married for less than six local months, and Rankler had been his best man. Sure it isn't. Rankler rolled his eyes. Not her combination, McNaughton said, and Rankler's eyes stopped rolling and narrowed. Who? The hell else would calm you at a moment like this? If you'll take the damned deck, I'll find out, McNaughton said tartly, and Rankler nodded. Sorry, he said. You're relieved. I stand relieved, McNaughton replied. Spit and polish or not, there were some formalities and procedures which simply had to be observed. Rankler moved closer to the master plot, and McNaughton stepped back a few paces far enough to stay out of everyone else's way, and punched to accept the audio-only call. "'McNaughton!' he said tersely. "'Captain, it's Cicely Tealacanen,' a voice said, and he felt his shoulder stiffen. Tealacanen had been stationed in Saltash longer than any of its previous governors or lieutenant governors. If Valentine McNaughton had been inclined to trust any OFS bureaucrat, it would probably have been Tila Akanen. As it was, he at least mistrusted her less than any of her predecessors. To be honest, however, that wasn't saying a great deal, and his eyes narrowed as he wondered why she was on his private circuit rather than one of the official comm channels. Yes, he responded after a moment, some instinct prompting him to use no names or official titles any of his watchstanders might overhear. I'm on your private combination because I'm pretty sure this is a conversation neither of us would want to make part of the official record, Teela Kenan said, as if she'd read his mind. The governor and I just had a... disagreement. And? McNaughton said warily. Getting into the crossfire between frontier security bureaucrats was not something a prudent Saltasian did and I told him where he could put any further cooperation from me. Tealacanen told him flatly. I never did like this brainstorm of his, and I wish to hell I'd argued harder when he first came up with it. But I didn't. And now it's come home to roost with a vengeance. You know what happened to Dobroskaya. Yes, he said, although it hadn't been a question. Well... Duanya still refuses to back down. He even refused to authorize Meow to evacuate her ships. What? McNaughton's brows knit, and he glanced at the plot showing the thick shower of life pods descending toward cinnamon atmosphere. But Meow did that on her own, after I gave her a heads up. McNaughton could almost see Tiela Kanan's tart, sharp-edged grimace, even over the audio-only link. I suggested to her that it would probably be best to initiate direct contact with this Zavala before our esteemed governor got around to complicating things for her. She still may take it in the ear, but at least she didn't have any orders not to abandon, yet, and she can make a pretty damned good case for having to make a quick decision without any guidance from her civilian superiors— officially, at least. I see. And you're calming me to do the same thing. More or less. He heard the sound of an exasperated exhalation. You're not in the same position Meow was. You can't just evacuate the station, and I'm damn sure he's going to be ordering you and McWilliams and that jackass pole not to release the mantis. He's got this notion Zavala won't push it, won't dare to take any action that could get civilians hurt. Which you think he will? McNaughton kept his voice down, but his expression tightened. My honest impression? I don't think he wants to, but this is one genuine hard-ass, Val. I don't know how typical he is of Mantis in general, but this guy isn't going to take any crap from anybody, and the fact is that we're legally in the wrong on this one. Worse, Zavala knows we are, and I think he's just demonstrated he isn't likely to spend a lot of time dithering about his next move. I don't know what he may have said to Duenas after I left, but if I had to guess, it would be something along the lines of give me back my nationals and nobody else needs to get hurt. Get in my way and a lot of people will get hurt. And since the nationals in question happen to be aboard your space station... Her voice trailed off in the verbal equivalent of a shrug, and McNaughton closed his eyes. Wonderful. This day just kept getting better and better. "'Well, I appreciate the information, sir,' he said briskly, raising his voice just enough for anyone standing close enough to hear him to hear the honorific's gender. "'Unfortunately, I've got to get back to work now. Things are a little lively here, you know.' and I probably need to keep the link open for official calls. I do know, and I'm sorry. Luck. Teela Kanan disconnected, and McNaughton drew a deep breath, then strode back over to Rankler. Get hold of Bridie, he said softly. I need her and McGeechan in my briefing room ten minutes ago, and for God's sake, don't put it on the P.A., "'I'll do that thing,' Rankler agreed, "'looking less surprised than he might have, "'and McNaughton nodded and headed for the briefing room "'just off Shona Station's command deck. "'Lieutenant Commander Bridie McWilliams, "'the commander of the SSS police forces aboard the station, "'and Lieutenant Ardseed McGeechan, her second-in-command, "'arrived in McNaughton's briefing room in under three minutes. "'He wasn't really surprised. "'McWilliams was young, but he'd always known she was quick.' She was also the sort who thought ahead, and she'd probably been waiting by her calm with her track shoes already sealed, anticipating his call. You called, Skipper? She said as she and McGeechan stepped through the door and it closed behind them. I did indeed. He smiled bleakly. I think it's entirely possible things are about to get really ugly. Ugly? As in right here aboard the station? Or as in getting even uglier in general? McWilliams asked. Maybe both, but I'm more concerned about Shona than anything else. I've just been informed by a reliable source that Governor Duenas has no intention of meeting the Mantis' demand that their personnel be released to them. Jesus, McGeechan muttered, then blushed and shook himself. Sorry, sir. You're not thinking anything I'm not, Lieutenant, McNaughton assured him. Should I take it, sir, that a reliable source wasn't Governor Duenas? McWilliams asked, her eyes shrewd. I think we should just move along quickly without getting into that particular point, McNaughton told her with a tight smile. What matters right this minute is that the Mantis are going to insist we hand their people over, and Duenas is going to order us not to hand their people over. Under the circumstances... I could live with telling our esteemed governor to suck vacuum, but I strongly suspect Major Pole would be disinclined to support us in that. McWilliams's blue eyes hardened. She and Major John Pole, the CO of the Solarian Gendarmerie Intervention Battalion OFS had stationed here aboard Shona Station, loathed one another. Pole's people hadn't enforced the kind of brutal reign of terror frontier security had imposed or supported, at any rate, in all too many protectorate systems. But that didn't make him a knight in shining armor. McWilliams and her predecessor had been forced to deal with several complaints about Pole, most from women who hadn't responded favorably enough to his advances. Any Saltashian would have been hammered hard over the same sort of accusations. At the very least, he would have been dragged in while they were thoroughly investigated— but local police forces didn't go around investigating the commanders of intervention battalions. That was one of the facts of life in The Verge, and it stuck in Bridie McWilliams Cross sideways. Worse, as the gendarme CO, poll set the standard. Two or three of his troopers had gotten far enough out of line that the previous OFS governor had actually authorized their prosecution and one of them had even been broken out of the gendarmerie and sent away for ten T-years of hard time on the gas extraction platforms orbiting Himalaya. Duenas had promptly turned the clock back, however, which was how McWilliams came to hold her present position, since one of the governor's first actions had been to sack her predecessor precisely because of those prosecutions. "'Skipper?' she said now. "'I think we have limited options here.' I've got around five hundred cops for the entire station, most with nothing heavier than sidearms, and even after detachments, Paul's got the better part of two companies of gendarmes on station. I don't have an up-to-the-minute count, but he's got to have close to three hundred people up here, and they've got a lot heavier equipment than mine do. Two hundred and seventy-three as of this morning, ma'am, McGeechen put in. Not counting three on sick call in the infirmary. McNaughton and McWilliams both looked at him with raised eyebrows, and he shrugged. "'I just thought it was something I should be checking on, given the situation, just so we could have a better feel for how we might integrate our own people with his if we had to, you understand.' "'I believe I do, ardseed McWilliams told him with an off-center smile. "'I believe I do.' Then her smile faded, and she turned back to McNaughton. "'Sir—' I think Major Pole will obey his orders, his legal orders, of course, from Governor Duenas, and I can't see anything aboard Shona Station which could reasonably be expected to prevent him from doing so. She'd chosen her words carefully, McNaughton noted. All of them could honestly testify that no one had even so much as suggested that they might attempt to resist the governor's instructions. I don't either, he told her. On the other hand, as you've pointed out, your people are much more lightly equipped than Major Pol's Gendarmes. Under the circumstances, I feel you and Lieutenant McGeechan would be best employed using your personnel for crowd control, public safety, and to back up Commander McVee's damage control crews in case they should be needed. My feeling is that we also ought to immediately begin evacuating civilian personnel from Victor 7 in order to facilitate any movements Major Pole may feel it's appropriate for him to make. Yes, sir, McWilliams nodded. Victor 7 was the station habitat module which had been assigned to the gendarmes ever since their original dispatch to Saltash. Actually, they'd assigned it to themselves, since it had originally been intended as the station's VIP habitat and was still the largest, most luxuriously appointed module Shona Station boasted. It had also been refitted to contain the gendarmerie's brig facilities, which were separate from those of the Saltash Space Service's police forces. No one had been especially happy about the notion of confining the Manticorn merchant spacers in Victor 7. The general feeling had been that Saltash was already on thin ice, and the gendarmerie was not famous for the consideration with which it treated individuals in its custody. Under the circumstances, however, McNaughton couldn't pretend he was unhappy to have them in Victor 7 because, aside from a few dozen service personnel with duty stations in the area, the only people in Victor 7 were going to be gendarmes and the mantis It's a pity, McNaughton continued, that our own lack of personnel and equipment means your available manpower is going to be fully employed, maintaining security throughout the rest of the station— But while we won't be able to reinforce or support the Major, I want every effort made to at least guarantee the integrity of the station in general and to ensure that he and his people are relieved of any responsibility which might distract them from Governor Duaneus's orders. I trust that's clear, Commander McWilliams? Yes, sir. McWilliams smiled thinly at him. Lieutenant McGeachin and I will get right on that.
1: That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 20, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Laura Haywood-Corey, to Christopher Cifani, and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a glass-brimming double-shot of Caribbean rum lifted in gratitude to author Steve White. Please join us next time here in the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.